the average PM is missing out on $195,000 of profit every year. We want to understand why is that the case? And I believe that the answer to that question really comes back to understanding what is the 20% of what you do that creates 80% of your value. Hello, professional property managers. Andrew Smallwood here with the Triple Win Podcast. We've got a special replay today uh, from an exclusive session run by Adam Willis of Nestwell Property Management out in Utah, uh, Wolfgang Krosky uh, out, out of California, and our very own Thad Tarkington, moderated by Daniel Craig from Profit Coach. So uh, these guys got together, and you're, you're going to hear them ask and answer questions like, what are some of the metrics and KPIs used to measure a great experience? What are some of the opportunities from move-in and initial onboarding throughout some of the highs and lows, emotional events uh, throughout the investor and resident life cycle? How can we expand the lifetime value of these relationships by creating great experiences? And what are some of the best practices to do just that? So you've got uh, an action-packed, lengthy recording going deep across just that, how to build winning experiences for residents, investors, uh, and ultimately drive a great win uh, for your bottom line. So we hope you enjoy and we'd love to hear your feedback. Welcome back to the Operationalizing Profit webinar series. So glad to have you joining us today. It's going to be a great day and we're really thankful that you take some time out of your busy schedule to join myself, Adam Willis, Wolfgang Krosky, and Thad Tarkington. We are here to talk about operationalizing profit. Efficiency, growth, experience, profit. Last week, we talked about architecting labor efficiency. Today, we are talking about architecting experience, how to leverage the operational drivers of owner and resident experience plus profit. Next week, we'll be talking about architecting growth, but so glad to have you joining us here live today. And we've got a lot of things in the house uh, planned for today. I always do this, guys. I always forget to change the chat settings to everybody can chat with everyone. So, all right, I just done that. Where are you tuning in from? Go ahead and jump into chat and tell us uh, where you're tuning in from. Tampa, sunny San Diego, Danielle, thanks for making us jealous. And then um, the question I want to throw out there today is uh, what's one thing that you love about property management, okay? I don't know that I've ever asked that here in this webinar series before. What's one thing you love about property management? Let's get a little gratitude going as well. We are privileged to have some great panelists in the house today, Thad Tarkington, Second Nature. Thad, thanks for joining. And Adam Willis, Nestwell. Thank you, Adam, for being here and sharing your experience with the industry and Wolfgang Krosky with Krosky Real Estate. Wolf, appreciate you being here as well. Some things we got coming into chat, never a dull moment. I love that. That's like the best way to say what you love about property management, never a dull moment. New problems to solve. I love the long-term relationships with my clients, Michael Francis, the people making lives better, giving our clients amazing investment experience and our residents an amazing quality home to live in. Thank you for the positive outlook there. Michael, I appreciate that very much. My name's Daniel Craig. You know me. I'm the author of the Narbonne County Standard CEO here at Profit Coach, and we help 
property managers expand their highly uh, their entrepreneurial freedom by building highly profitable self-managing companies. And as I've said before, uh, the thing that I'm even more thankful than all that is to be uh, dad to these kiddos and husband to Megan. Uh, God has given me many blessings, and I'm thankful for all the blessings that we experience every day uh, in our lives from God. All right. Questions. If you have them, drop them in the Q&A box. That's where we'll be answering questions as we go along here. It's hard to keep on top of questions if you're putting them in chat, so be sure and drop them in the Q&A box. As always, we are here to facilitate transformation in mindset and thinking to help you go from financial fog to financial clarity, from gut-based decision-making to predictable forecasting, and ultimately from mediocrity to benchmark success. Are you guys ready to talk about architecting experience? Going to get a little energy in the house from the panelists. Somebody just, you know, you can, there we go. Thank you. All right. How to leverage operational drivers of owner and resident experience plus profit architecting experience. I want to throw up a poll to get this conversation kicked off today because I want to come at experience uh, from a very specific measurable approach today. There's a lot of talk about experience and that's good because it's very important, but what do we mean by it? And um, specifically, how do we measure it? Um, We're gonna throw up a poll in just a moment, but the context for this series and for this episode is the financial benchmark study that we did last year. And looking at the fact that when it comes to profitability, the average in the industry is 11%, the top 25% of performers are doing 32% profitability. And we ran the numbers to understand what the average company is losing out on in terms of profit as a result of the gap that you see there on the screen. And the average PM is missing out on $195,000 of profit every year. We wanna understand why is that the case? And I believe that the answer to that question really comes back to understanding what is the 20% of what you do that creates 80% of your value. Uh, So much of our time is focused on process and activity, but what is the right process? What is the right activity to be focused on that creates value and ultimately drives profit in your business? Too many PMs operate without a real-time connection between day-to-day processes, value creation, and bottom-line financial performance. And that's the connection that we're trying to forge in this webinar series by looking at profit in terms of four aspects of the day-to-day of your business, process, execution, experience, and growth. We're trying to operationalize profit and profit thinking in those four areas. Today, we are focused on experience with these fine panelists and Let's dive in with that poll. How do you know if you are generating a high value experience? I'm gonna go ahead and launch the poll here. How do you know if you're providing a high value experience? Go ahead and select the answer that you think is the most important indicator. Revenue per unit. Uh, In other words, if you are charging a lot and people are willing to pay a lot, then you're obviously providing high value. Um, Unit churn. Um, Google or Yelp ratings, resident lifetime, profitability, organic unit growth, uh, organic referrals, satisfaction scoring or surveys or something else. Go ahead and throw in your response to that question. While you're answering, I want to tell you a story. It's Adam's story, but I'm the guy that makes Adam's dashboards. So I have the story to tell with Adam's numbers today. 
And as I was thinking about preparing for this webinar series and answering this question, how do you know if you're providing a high value experience? I think that there's uh, three things that I've observed about Nestwell over the last three years, three trends that help us answer this question. Number one is um, growth. Um, here's a look at Nestwell's growth over the last three years uh, from about 400 to a, just under a thousand units today with two small acquisitions right here and right here, but tons of organic growth in the process. And so when you look at the value that Nestwell is providing, the first thing we see is that people are coming. People are coming to Nestwell. Number two, when we look at Nestwell's churn charts over the same time period, you see a net decrease. Back here in uh, about three years ago, we were at about um, 15%. Then we hit um, the hot real estate sales cycle. I think, Adam, you lost a, a, a multifamily portfolio or, or something right in here. And then that cleared out of the system. And now we're right at the benchmark, uh, the NARPA benchmark at about 10% churn. So the se second thing we see is that people are staying. And then uh, the last question is, well, is Nestwell making any money? And I'm not going to tell you how much money they're making, but here's a look at the profitability charts for Nestwell over three years. Over the same three years, uh, they've gone from roughly about 12% uh, profitability to about 27% profitability today, which means that they're profitable. So I'm going to throw this out to you as the answer to the question, how do you know if you're providing a high value experience and panelists? Um, I'd love to hear some of your thoughts on this, uh, but the, the the premise I want to throw out, and you guys can pick this apart, is the idea that organic growth plus retention plus profitability equals a high value experience, or at least that's one way to know. Because if you have growth without retention, that could just mean you're good at sales and marketing. Um, if you have growth and retention without profit, that could just mean you're cheap. Uh, but if you have growth and retention and profit, it means you're providing real value that people are coming for and staying for. Um, I'm going to open it up. Wolf and Thad probably are more objective than Adam on this one. Thoughts? So I, I can say for a long time, uh, we were bullet number two. Like yeah. we were growing. We weren't having any churn. Life was great. But then you start looking at your numbers and like, oh, maybe life's not as great as we thought, right? Because you're so stuck on number of doors, number of doors. How many doors do we have? And the company doing real estate sales and looking at the whole thing, but realizing on the PM side, it wasn't, it wasn't as profitable and we need to, to make a change. So I definitely agree with number three, growth, retention, and profit as uh, indicators. Dad, I'd love to hear your thoughts. And by the way, I just threw up the um, results of the poll. 26% of people think that unit churn is the best, most important indicator of experience uh, based on what I put on the screen anyways. And the next one is organic referrals. Um, thoughts on all the above? Yeah, I uh, I would agree. I like to focus on uh, churn and referrals. Because uh, <laughs> at the end of the day, I think if people are leaving you or they're referring you, it's kind of different sides of the same coin here, which is are people yeah. happy with the service, happy with the experience? And yeah, I, I think like in any business, uh, finding what really drives a good experience, that there's probably a handful of things that really impact people. And I will probably talk about this later, but um, you know, thinking about a resident or an investor owner, you know, what's that first impression you leave with them? So starting your sales process, you know, do you come off professional? Um, you know, that really sets that bar. And then, you know, from there obviously you can grow trust, build trust, or you can lose trust. But that's that's one area I highlight, I think. So I love that. And that speaks specifically to the question of what is 
the 80%, the 20% of what you do that drives 80% of the value. We're going to dig specifically into that, Thad. Great um, lead into that. Adam, this is your story that I just told for about a minute. Any any feedback on this, especially having walked this journey? Yeah, I have a post above my camera here and it says people, product, and profit. And if you have an amazing people experience and, and your product is solving uh, concerns for your customers, the, the profits will, pop, will follow. The post right next to it is everything we do, we ask, how does it provide value? So every decision we make is directly correlated to What's the experience for the customer? How does this impact our product? And the better it is, the more we can charge. Awesome. Okay, well, let's dive into uh, the meat and potatoes for today. We're going to be talking about experience fundamentals. We're going to be talking about measuring and improving experience inputs and then measuring and improving experience outputs. Folks, we're probably going to go about um, 15 minutes past the top of the hour. So we're going to run for about an hour and 15 today, about another hour from now. So it's going to be awesome. Hang with us as long as you can. Experience fundamentals. This is really what I was just alluding to, but I want to give you uh, some, some specific things to kind of hang your hat on in terms of growth, retention, and profitability. And um, these are numbers that I would encourage you to measure in, in relationship to the NARPM accounting standards. Um, as I uh, will just throw up a little bit of a sampling of that data, the national average for churn is 20%, whereas the top 25% of companies with the lowest churn are right around 10%. And by the way, this is based off of 21, uh, 2021 data, which was very much still in the hot sales market. And even in that time, companies were still maintaining fairly low churn uh, at 10%. Um, when it comes to profitability, again, we've talked about this, the average is 11%, uh, the benchmark's 32%. Um, next week, I'm going to be bringing data on what the fastest growth companies do in terms of adding new doors so that you can sort of benchmark yourself in terms of the door add um, side of the equation. But these are some experience fundamentals. But I think the big question for a lot of us is what's underneath the surface of these experience fundamentals? What, like Thad was saying, are the, the first impression significant experience, or like Adam was saying, the things that we do that really drive value? That's what we're going to start talking about in terms of onboarding, in terms of maintenance, in terms of communications, and some other areas of your business. Um, but before we dive into that, we are really thankful for partners for this webinar series that have made this possible. And they've banded together to put together this operationalizing profit resource bundle. And it's uh, and four different resources. First of all, it's an expanded, um, not available to the public resident experience report from Second Nature, uh, a set of benchmarks for world-class maintenance operations and experience from property mail, WBDM's output system from RentScale, and then 10 workflows to increase your profitability through systems, plus a bonus hiring process to reduce time to hire as used by the Lead Simple team. So um, if you would get some value out of any one of those resources, just say yes, I want that, and we'll have our partners send those to you. If you already said yes last week, you're already on the list, um, but want to make these resources available to you again. Let's talk a little bit about measuring and improving experience inputs. And, and the question that I want to ask here is, um, what are the key events in the owner and resident life cycle that you have to get right? Um, in other words, what is the 20% of what you do that creates 80% of your value? 
And I've already talked to Adam Wolfgang and Thad offline about this. So I'm not going to have you guys answer this question. We're just going to dive right in. First of all, we're going to talk about owner onboarding best practices. And Wolf, I want to just um, have you talk a little bit about your journey with this, some of the metrics that you're currently looking at and, and tracking. One of the things that came up in the webinar last week that I just put up here um, was something from Brad, and that is the amount of time between um, the onboarding uh, to the basically getting that unit or that owner handed off to their ongoing property manager and pod. So that's what that number is about. But what are some things you've been tracking related to onboarding experience and some best practices around that? Yeah. Uh, so I think first off, a lot of times people say, oh, Wolf, you know, all this automation, all this tech, you probably have dashboards that are just pages and pages. And the reality is I don't. Dashboards are definitely not one of my strong points, but trying to get better at that. So we use 90.io and have our scorecard in there. And what we are tracking as far as that owner experience is the number of emails, calls that are coming in in those first 30 days. Because for us, it's an indicator of, well, how how is our onboarding experience going in general? Like, are they reading the emails or maybe the, the wording's not clear? Maybe we can change up our messaging. One thing that we found is people don't read. So we're changing our onboarding experience to be more video-based and actually scheduling old-school phone calls and using that to to improve that experience. Because our onboarding wasn't super automated because we wanted kind of that high touch feel, but it still relied upon uh, emails at different sequences when we thought, okay, they're probably now going to get their first owner distribution. So let's explain that process and all those things that were covered during the the sales process and the initial onboarding, but we wanted to, you know, um, do it again. But the, the issue is we're finding, I think people just don't read. So even when we tried to spice things up with the chat GPT email and emojis and all that, it's still just not working. So we're going to actually do scheduled phone calls and changing some of our emails to actually be uh, videos to help with that based on the data that we're getting. I see somebody asking about what software we're using to track emails and phone calls. I'll let you know it is a little bit on the manual side. So we use Zoom. For our phone service, we were using Ring Central, but when you can cut your phone bill by half, you you make the switch. So we're using Zoom, and you can you know uh, export your call log. You can sort by caller ID and different things. But it is it is a little bit on the manual process. On the email side, we have in our owner onboarding process in Lead Simple a simple question of you know how many emails were sent, and in Lead Simple in the inbox, we can see exactly how many emails came in from that owner and then we just put that number so it's not an automated just the number shows up in the scorecard and we know and i wouldn't say that our number is 100 percent accurate either but at least we can see the trend and the other question that we look at is okay for those that did call our email what did they call our email about and using that as a way to enhance that that onboarding um, with that. So that's, I think for owners specifically, that's what we track. For tenants, we look at number of work orders submitted in the first 30 days. That okay. lets us know, did we have a good turn? Did we uh, catch everything we're supposed to? You know, was it turnkey like we promised? And also we get those tenants that they submit a, a non-work related service request. How do I do fill in the blank? and using that to improve the onboarding experience. 
It's awesome. We're going to dive a little bit more into um, the resident side of things a little bit more as well. But uh, Adam, when we talked prior to this webinar, uh, you shared some really fantastic things just in terms of what the sequence or best practices that you guys have surfaced in terms of creating value in this um, high value moment. Um, I'd love to have you uh, unpack that. And just tell us a little bit about like, what is the overall process and some key things that you find make the process sparkle? For owner onboarding or resident? Oh, uh, owner onboarding, yeah. Yeah, the overarching theme is being able to anticipate the need, right? So addressing the question before it even comes in. So when Wolfgang's like, hey, how many emails did we receive for the client? We want to proactively address the need before they even know they have it, right? And that's part of that's ease of doing business. So our owner onboarding is from the second the deal is closed, we have a owner onboarding specialist, that's our full-time gig, and there is a 90-day process that's broken down to six different phases that we uh, are engaging with the, re the homeowners and saying, this is what you need to do. And it starts from like, a welcome call, welcome phone, email, and saying, let's schedule your onboarding, let's get together, I'm going to walk this through and make it as easy as possible. And there's major components that happen, right? Like the, you immediately, someone who signs with you is a big contract, they're trusting you with a half million dollar house or whatever, and then you ghost them for 12 hours, they immediately have buyer's remorse. What have I done? I haven't heard from yeah. anyone. And these are all the feelings they're they're uh, going to experience. So buyer's remorse, so we, quickly get in contact with them, schedule the calls. We paint a picture. Hey, this is a 90 day process. This is when you're going to get your first owner drop. Let's go through this, get utility scheduled. Let's talk about when we're going to communicate, uh, when your property is rent ready, um, expenses around that. We're going to be talking about, let's see, when the property is vacant, how, how many leads we've received, what's the impression that we've received from like inquiries on the property, what's the feedback, does it smell funny? And we're engaging them once a week in that regard. And we have kind of a hub like your property's on the market, here's the lead, here's the application, here's qualified leads, and here's the lease signing, here's the move in. And it's this huge hub or spoke of lots of people talking to my owner onboarding specialist who then conveys the messaging to the homeowner saying, this is what we're doing. This is how we're providing value to you. That's awesome. And one of the things that you mentioned to me, Adam, um, is, and, and Wolf, you alluded to this as well, is, is, is personalized videos in the onboarding process. What I was expecting you to say was, yeah, and we have all of these pre-recorded videos that explain their statement and when the first owner draw will be and how to use their portal. But then you're like, no, no, they're they're personalized videos. Yeah, uh, but, so yeah. we, I mean, we did do that for us in our emails. We would have some canned. Here's how to log in your portal, etc. But when we looked at the data, like people didn't watch it. So yeah, whether you use like Bomb Bomb or Loom to do the animated thumbnail with their name, whatever it takes to get them. But it really, if you think about the time it takes to write an email or the time it takes to have a phone call, let's just say phone call three minutes. What type of personalized video could you record in the same amount of time? Send it to them. It's personalized. It makes it easier. Uh, you can make it systematic. You can record it whenever and send it whenever. So, I mean, I think yeah. there's, there's, it's a good blend of automation with personalization. It's awesome. Thad, you, you, you honestly alluded to this kind of in your opening comments, but uh, anything you want to just throw into the owner onboarding yeah. best practice conversation and, and also resident, we'll start pivoting to resident. 
Yeah. Yeah. So a, a couple things I heard that I would I would highlight is it's it's not as much about what you're saying or what you're sharing. It's what they're hearing. And that mm-hmm. is one thing I love about, you know, a phone call. And, you know, obviously there's things from scale. I'm not recommending that like, you know, car launch, but I, you know, if you get on the phone and you're talking, you know, they're here, you know, they're, they're taking in that information. And, you know, ultimately when I look at like the investor side of this equation, if you remove highly emotional events, they will probably stay with you forever and make them money, right? Like if those two things are happening, you know, no, no spikes in their, uh, and their emotions or their cash flow or, you know, whatever is coming in, they'll be happy. And it's so like so much of what I look at is, um, and Adam, you nailed this, like when someone signs on, it's like, you know, if the onboarding experience is great, suddenly they have buyer's remorse. But, you know, as you think about like every, you know, the life cycle of an investor, every time you have to reach out to them with bad news and need approval on a maintenance or this didn't go as planned, if you track all those and start to inventory them and say, okay, what are all of these things? <laughs> Just know, you know, if, if you think about like, uh, you know, I'll use the trust bucket, but it's like your satisfaction bucket. Every time one of those happens, you lose a little bit, right? <laughs> and, it, and it's really hard to give them something good in there because they're expecting you to perform well and they're expecting to make money, right? They hired you to not be involved often. And so, you know, I, I think that's like where I'd start is what are all those touch points? How, how do we get ahead of them? Uh, you know, it's Adam's point, you know, preemptively solve these things. And then, mm-hmm. you know, there are different um, operations, products, services that can smooth out those emotional events. Um, yeah, I, I think if if you're doing all that, then it's how do you be proactive and say, okay, how do we actually have a call to talk about what's going well? How do, how do we uh, share information? Um, so, but that that would be kind of my my key highlight is think through all those touch points and like, are, is every touch point is strengthening the relationship or is it weakening it? And, I, and what I see so often is, you know, it's a very reactive industry, but it's just the only conversation points are negative. And that's the, you know, the impression that that people will build. So that's, that's, that's great stuff to add. And one of the things I took away from what you said is the whole idea of like, even collecting data on what are those common interaction points or those negative experiences that are occurring now. And then what can we do proactively to remove those from ever occurring? So the, the point there is tracking the communication across all of your clients and finding what those themes are and then addressing those. One of the things that um, I want to do is talk a little bit about uh, resident onboarding. And Adam, you shared something with me uh, that was just kind of like, hey, is it that that just seems so expensive? Like, can't believe you guys do that with your residents. Um, but talk a little bit about what the resident onboarding process looks like for you guys. Yeah. Resident onboarding, it begins with having stellar showing people who are meeting people at the properties, showing them in person, turning on the lights, turning on the heat, all the way through. We then meet them when they've gone through the qualification process. And we're getting five-star reviews along this whole thing. Application process is absolutely dialed in. We have teams working 24 hours a day to get the application qualified and communicating with them and proactively getting documents. Here's where it gets really expensive for me is we meet the people at the property. We video the whole home. We say, hey, we've documented everything for you. You're welcome to do your own documentation. Let me take you on a tour of your new house where you're going to be bringing your firstborn child home to, right? So it's we walk them through the property. We educate them on where the water shutoffs are, where how to run the sprinkling system. We say, hey, look, it looks like something is wrong. 
and that's like a quote. So we have a property condition form. We kind of put some notes on it for them saying, this is how you fill that out. But it's a much high in-person interaction with them to make sure that they're having a fantastic experience that they're moving into their brand new home. So we always say, hey, welcome home. We have gift bags that are getting more and more robust um, with lots of necessities that they need for their first night and their first week staying there. And we just really want to, like, an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. And so we front road that front load that relationship um, through meeting them at the property and doing everything under the moon to really take care of them and making sure they really don't want for much. Now, it's not perfect, but we're aspirationally trying for that. And it garnishes a ton of goodwill. And, and we're not getting calls saying, hey, I have a flood. What do I do? They know because we've educated them how to shut off the water. So it's a very expensive, labor-intensive thing to move all of these people in every Friday and Saturday is when we do our move-ins, but it pays huge dividends on the back end. What are, what are some of the implications of that to like the ongoing relationship with a client around things like inspections? Yeah, so um, after the same person who does the move-in, who showed them the house, moved them in, we go and we walk all of our houses quarterly. And so that same person is now showing up. Oh, hey, it's Katie. She's she's from Nestwell. She's coming to walk my house with me and just check on everything and see if there's lease compliance issues, maintenance issues or whatever. So we're walking that home with them. So usually that's a massive point of contention where most property managers have just leaned away and be like, here's an app. Just go ahead. Do your own inspection. We're like, no, we're coming here. We're building relationships. And the byproduct of that is a lot of those residents are staying longer. The, the tenancy's way longer. Um, or they're buying houses from us, um, or they're baking us cookies when we show up. Hey, it's time for your quarterly <laughs> inspection. I'm showing up. And they're like giving us treats and we're like breaking bread with our residents now. That's awesome. Like you you turn the inspection from uh, this like, oh, they're coming to spy on me to like my friends are coming over for cookies. That is Absolutely. really great. Uh, Wolf, you mentioned uh, a little bit about the work orders in the first 30 days. Can you just unpack that one a little bit more? Why is that important in terms of resident onboarding and anything else you guys are doing on the resident onboarding practices? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's you, you think about the last time you moved, right? You got the stress of packing up all your crap, sorting all your crap, saying goodbye to neighbors, changing your kids' school, changing utilities, like this long list of things that we don't think about on the PM side because we don't have to deal with it, right? Like maybe we own our house and we haven't moved in 20 years, whatever, and we forget. And so you have a tenant who's going through this whirlwind of life-changing events and steps and you're going to ask them to read this really long email with all these details to find their gate code, give me a break. They're not going to do it. They may not even have internet hooked up yet, right? So sending this this long email with all these things they're supposed to do and then harassing them because they didn't turn in this stupid form within three days that's important to you. And they're like, screw you. I got more important. I got to get my kid in school. Like that's my priority right now. And then you add on top of it, the one toilet doesn't flush, we just moved in, or the ice maker's not working, or the carpet I thought was getting changed in the bedroom's not. And, you know, so it just really compounds things. So now they're stressed and now they're pissed. And that's like the worst combination ever. And so what we found is if we can make it, I can't help them with their school registration. I can't help them with a lot of things. But if I can make it where when they move in, it truly is turnkey. There's nothing else they have to do. Everything we promised is done. Everything's working. It just makes things a lot easier for everybody. 
And what we're noticing, and I'm trying to get real data because right now it's just anecdotal, that rest of that lease and that lifespan with that resident is a lot better based on that first 30 days. Like that really kind of sets the tone of, oh, they're just another management company. They promise stuff and it never gets done, right? And it's where if they move in and it's just rock solid, it, it just makes the world different. So we're, we're using that because we try to, how can we measure that first 30 day experience? And as a company, we felt, you know, work orders is a way to do it. It's it's easy to get that data out of Appfolio. It doesn't take a, a data engineer to give us that number. Any one of us can access it. And we felt that we could really control that, that, that outcome. So that's what we're doing right now. Are all of our move-ins stellar? No, we, we've dropped the ball on a couple, but at least we know what number we're going to use, how we're going to get there, and our goal is zero. It also then helps us to pick better owners because we know that at the end of the day, if an owner's not willing to do certain things, that's going to come back on us, right? The owner doesn't get the bad Yelp review. We do. So if we have an owner that's not going to get the property to the condition we want, do we really want to work with them? Mm-hmm. So it's it's really been helping us a lot. So That's awesome. Thad, um, I know you guys have done a lot of research and, and work on resident experience. What what are some things that you guys have found to be particularly important in the initial leasing process, uh, specifically in, in resident onboarding process up front? Yeah, so I would say when I think about resident onboarding, one one thing that's true is there's a million edge cases. You know, and if you try and say like everything's going to be the same or, you know, everyone will operate the same and we're going to run into the same scenarios. Like that's just not going to be true. And so the, you know, something that we've been working on heavily at uh, second nature is really this kind of resident onboarding and kind of enrollment tool. It's so the idea is when you're moving into a new property, a resident may have never owned a home or lived in a single family home either where they're responsible for a ton of maintenance items, responsible for the lawn. There's just things they haven't ever even thought of. And and it seems obvious to us, but like you'll move in a month later, the lawn's ever grown. They're like, what do I do? Right. And so, you know, the, 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 the way we think about this is because you have so many edge cases, how do you kind of create these closed loop systems and accountability for the items that really matter to the, the property and to the property owner? And, you know, so what, so this tool, what we're building, what it does is, uh, effectively, the resident goes through and it takes all their responsibilities from the lease, something that people often don't read. It brings it up into easy to digest, you yeah. know, bite-sized pieces, just explaining, you know, if it's a multi-unit, here's how parking works, you know, do you want to add parking, right? That's a selection you can make right there, you know, removing that that given piece. Um, you know, lawn, this is what your responsibility is for lawn maintenance. Do you want to do it yourself or do you want to, you know, ha- have a vendor do it for you, right? And so it's kind of this whole configuration tool. And effectively, you know, we just went live with this recently, but effectively what it does is it digitizes that entire enrollment process in small bite-sized pieces where you can see is each thing complete. And <laughs> then it's paired with these closed loop systems we've designed. So one example I'll give you is, is renter's insurance, just an easy one. You know, if you kind of rewind five years, 10 years, everybody's saying, hey, you have to have renter's insurance. Here's why. The challenge people would have is somebody moves in. They were told to buy a policy. You know, Wolfgang, to your point, it was probably in a 30-page letter. They didn't buy it. They've got four kids screaming in a, in a moving van. And the last thing you're going to do is say, hey, call State Farm and I'll give you your key, right? It's, <laughs> hey, send it to me next week. 
But right, if you think about the incentives, the leasing agent's not incentivized to follow up. Property managers are busy, right? You have all these moving parts. And so that's where if you don't have a closed loop system, which you ended up with, a majority of residents were uninsured. And then the downside of that is you have a kitchen fire and it's a real big mess. Um, so the closed loop system design there is, okay, well, you have to be on a policy of some sort. So in the lease language, we're going to say, you know, resident, you're responsible uh, to have insurance. If you do nothing, you'll be on this policy. If you want to shop for a policy, you can do it here. If you have your own policy, you can upload it here. And then on the back end, if they upload one, you know, they're, they're, they're covered. In the event that that, for any reason, expires, they get auto-re-enrolled, right? And so like, <laughs> that's one example there. You could say the same thing for like lawn service, for example. You know, this is the standard you have to, to maintain it to. You can do it yourself. Here's the cost. You have to get a lot more education, you know? And, and so you start to think through kind of that onboarding piece. It's here's all your responsibilities. <laughs> and we've designed a closed loop system that solves these. And then it's about giving that resident choice, accountability, and transparency. Choose how you want to solve the problem, but there's an accountability mechanism. Mm. Uh, and I think, you know, again, if, if you look at any business problem, often, you know, there's a lacking incentive to solve it. So I, I saw some jokes in the uh, in the chat here about maybe I should make a test. You know, the reality is people will take the test, right? Like you can keep adding more more stuff, but, you know, um, you know, how, how do you get people to, to really digest information and how do you design like a, a, a fail safe? knowing they won't, um, I think is really important in the resident onboarding process. So that's 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 great stuff that this so we're all clear. What do you mean specifically by a closed loop system? Yeah, yeah. So, so the example would be, you know, using the renter's insurance, it's, you know, you can have your own policy or you're on this policy and, and, and yeah, if this gotcha. expires, you pop here. And this in the event, you know, if you want to buy your own, you can upload it. So it's like no matter there, there's no escaping the, the proper outcome. Right. So, right. so that's what I mean by, you know, closed loop is just that there's a, there's a solution designed for every edge case to, yeah. to capture um, and make sure that something's taken care of. That was great. Thank you, Thad. When it comes to um, the, the next big area that we want to talk about here, let's go to uh, maintenance best practices. And Wolf, you touched on these a little bit, um, but on the last webinar, we talked a little bit about speed of repair as just a basic metric of experience, turn time, target less than 15 days, um, also the number of touches per ticket. And um, any additional thoughts you'd have on that, Wolf, as it relates to maintenance metrics that you're tracking and trying to improve? Time to uh, get the work order assigned. A lot of tenants realize labor shortage, you know, just different things. But they just want to know it's, it's just not sitting on somebody's desk sitting there. Like it's it's being worked on. So as soon as they can see that it's been assigned to a vendor, it, it's, a, it's a big stress reducer. So that's one that I would add to this list. I mean, maintenance, you could, there's like millions of metrics you could get into. But as far as the, around the experience and what was important for a resident, it's how quickly is this thing moving along and how quickly can we get somebody to the house to fix this problem. Because to us, the microwave not working, I'm sharing this because this is a, a recent story in our office that we could do a whole webinar on, the five-star review around a microwave that my mom swapped out. Anyways, the that was a big deal, this microwave. You know, they still had cooktop and all this. It was a big deal. But for our office, it's like, ah, it's a microwave. You still have your cooktop. You know, it, it's not a top priority. And we have to, I think, put ourselves in the other person's shoes, right? Every work order that's submitted is an emergency to that tenant. We have to somehow get it done. And 
for us, we have different criteria, but for them at that point in their day, that is an emergency for whatever reason. And it's top priority, you know, not having hot water ruins the rest of your day, you know, all these different things. So how can we use data to help speed up work orders? Because even though it's not an emergency to us, it's an emergency to our resident. And it's one of the top reasons why residents move is around how maintenance is handled. So maintenance and communication are the top two that we really focus on, both on owner and resident, but uh, the speed in which work orders are dealt with and then completed is huge for residents. Awesome. And like callbacks too, like did it actually get fixed the, the first time around? Having to rearrange your work schedule because the vendor didn't do it right the first time and now they got to come back a second time is, is a big one. Bad. Adam, anything you would add on uh, is the maintenance discussion here. Yeah, I can I can go, Adam, or you? Go ahead. You like that. Cool. Um, so, so I'll highlight uh, what one of the uh, one of the most uh, recent products we brought we brought onto our platform was on-demand pest control, uh, partnering with Pest Share on that. And you know, what when I think about pest control, like use this as an example. I was talking about highly emotional events earlier. And so if you look at, you know, your typical property and say, let's say you have a basket of 100 properties and hypothetically, let's say 10 have a, a pest issue every year, you know, right now that's not something that's budgeted for, right? So the resident makes a complaint, their expectation is you're going to solve this, right? They probably, again, didn't read the lease with the responsibilities. So their expectation is just whatever they came up with in their mind. The problem then is when you go to the owner and say, hey, you need to pay for this. Yeah, and you just create a highly emotional event. I lived there five years, never had a cockroach. Why is this my fault? You know, and then no matter where it lands, you've got three people, yourself or the property manager, you know, the resident and the investor, you know, with, with a little bit of friction and everybody's having a bad day now, right? And so I think, you know, you look at, um, you know, Adam was talking about how do you do preventative stuff? So to me, like, you know, a, a solution like this is saying, okay, first, let's get this budgeted for. We know it's going to be a problem. How do we budget that? How do we equally distribute that so everyone, you know, is, is kind of c contributing their, their uh, you know, their cost to it? And then the nice thing is when you have a, you know, pest control issue that pops up, instead of the old way, which was, you know, kind of finger point until someone finally gives up and kind of waves the white flag. Now it's, hey, we budgeted for this. Here's where you submit your claim, you know, or your your work order. Someone's going to come out and solve it, so this resident gets a great experience. But then. The thing that you know often will happen is you might roll this out and you don't see this anymore, but it's actually such a high value. The fact that the resident can just submit a ticket and get something solved, that's great. What's even better though is that's not an hour that your team member spent getting beat up by another investor. That's <laughs> not an hour you ruin the investor, you know, call them on a Tuesday afternoon and they were having a bad day already, right? Those are the things that make them go, gosh, wouldn't it be easy just to sell this and go into something else, right? And so I think about like, how do you look at again, like, what what is any touch point you've ever had? It could be maintenance oriented. Obviously, you know we we have some other things around filters and things like all focused on how do you reduce maintenance, um, which in in turn reduces those emotional events for your customer and, and makes them a happy customer. So that's just kind of one example I'd give, and you know you could apply that to any any problem you're having in, in the business. So proactive, right? Proactive, Adam. Uh, I'm just gonna say I alluded to this, the property condition form. So that which the resident submits, you know, three days, seven days after they've occupied the home, that's really a quality assurance, quality control component for us. If anything that comes in on that list that should have been caught by our turnover team, like our internal team or a third party vendor actually doing the work, we have a problem. 
We talk about it with that vendor. We say, why did this happen? And how we do a root cause analysis and make sure it never happens again. So it's just mostly the tenant saying, hey, the house isn't perfect and they're taking it as is. But if they miss something that should have been caught, that's a problem for us. Adam, I, I can't remember if you mentioned this, and maybe that's what you were just saying, is that when the um, person does the walkthrough, initial walkthrough and move in with the tenant, that's an opportunity that you also have to do a two for one and get on site again after the move in and make note of anything as another set of eyes on the move in on the turn to make sure that anything that still needs to be addressed is getting addressed. Can you just unpack that for a second? Yeah, the turnover right before a resident moves into the home, um, we have a turnover process that ends Friday around noon. We pre-walk the house, we video the home in really great detail, which is immortalizing the condition of the home so we can use it for security deposit dispositions in the future, correct, right? So that gets done, we move the tenant in and we walk through the property with them and they might catch something, maybe they have a better eye or whatever. And we can not only manage expectations like, ah, that little ding in the wall, well, it's not a brand new car. It's going, it's not a brand new house. They'll be Nixon Jesus. So we can manage expectations because there are certain things that we just will not do. It's just normal wear and tear. Uh, but if something is wrong, we can quickly address it because we're all on the hunt to deliver a really great experience. And then that person who's doing the move in is asking for a five-star review at the end of that interaction. So they're very concerned saying, oh, your microwave's broken. We should have caught that. They own it and they can report it, and we have a direct connection to get that vendor back out and have it fixed before they actually start moving stuff in. Does that unpack it enough yeah, for you? Yeah, that's awesome. Okay. Adam, um, this one is kind of, I think, addressed specifically for you, this question. All of these move-in processes, this is Thomas, seem amazing, but how can you afford to do this? I'm doing the math <laughs> in my head, and I can't think of how I could pay for someone to do all that on the move-in. One, it comes with time. Two, I think it's knowing your value, right? Like. Yeah. It go back to the overarching theme here is, are you doing things that create values for your residents and your homeowners, your two shareholders? And the answer is, yeah, when you know your value, you can start charging your worth and that generates income and that generates profit. And what you do with that profit is you're reinvesting and deploying more people to deliver on your overarching theme, which is deliver a great experience to your residents and owners. Does that make sense? Yeah, it, it's a, it's a work in progress, right? Like you can't have a team of 80 tomorrow. Um, but yeah, you're going to be wearing lots of hats on hats on hats, but slowly you will niche down and say, this person just does onboarding. This person just does this. So it comes with scale. That's one of the byproducts of scale. Yeah. And I'm not saying this is true of you, Adam, but it also helps to have a revenue per unit that's over $300 to make this possible. Right. So yeah. like that is the the this is this is the the bigger pie dimension of thinking that we're talking about here creating more value and people love it nestle's got a 4.7 on google and people are willing to pay for it it's 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 a cycle what's your process to make sure you're not having work orders come in um we'll have you take this one i feel like our list is comprehensive but we are struggling to get the number down how long does your property inspection take what do you do? When do you do your final walkthrough before moving? A lot there, but I think the basic basic question is, what's the process for minimizing work orders? Yeah, so I think the one that we notice is identifying what what are those work orders coming in? Do you identify any trends? We found that we had tenants submitting non work related service requests about like how do I access the common area or you know things they just they saw in the portal, and I think it's partly because of Atfolio how they list. 
they call it a service request, not a, a work order. And so they treat it like a concierge. So we were able to identify what are some of those common work orders that were coming in in the first 30 days and then looked at our onboarding to see how can we address that. And we noticed that for the HOA properties and HOAs, we tended to have more. And we realized that our onboarding, the messaging was pretty vanilla and we didn't have any specific to the HOAs. And so what we've done by using conditional logic, we have some additional messages that have HOA specific, you know, how do you, you know, access the gate? How do you add your name to the um, directory? How do you get your, you know, access to the pool and stuff like that? That cut down a lot of a lot of those calls. The other ones that we've done is we actually have two sets of eyes that will take care of the property before move in. So we have the maintenance side, they have their checklist, they do their thing. And then we send the uh, property manager out to do a final walkthrough. And we actually put the onus on the property manager when there's a work order submitted, not the maintenance department, because they were the, the second set of eyes. So that has helped quite a bit. We use the inspector, which helps, you know, organize those inspections and keep them you know, consistent. The other benefit to having those on digital is it just it just makes it easier to share things. As far as the time frame to do a movement inspection, it's about an hour and a half, I would say. One thing that we're flirting around with. So Adam was talking about that personalized movement and showing them water water shut off and all of that. That water shut off is not going to change year after year. So when we onboard a new property, we're actually starting to make customized instructional videos specific to that house. Mm. And then we don't have to do it again. I don't have enough data to say whether it works or not, but that's how we're going to tackle that. Because the the generic welcome to your new property, long email with everything is garbage. It just doesn't work. So back to Thad's point, uh, you're talking, but they're not hearing. All right. That's awesome. We're going to touch uh, briefly on overall communication best practices, and we won't spend a lot of time on this, but a um, couple of metrics to put out here, uh, time to response, target of under 12 business hours. I think this is true for both uh, you, Wolf, and you, Adam, if I recall from our conversations. Yep. And then also another one I think that came out of our webinar last week was touches per ticket. Um, any any things you guys want to add to these in terms of communication best practices, any of you? I think one thing people see this so like, oh my gosh, less than 12 hours. So I know we're not supposed to talk about fees, but let's just say you have a tiered offering of services. You can take a page out of the software book and say at the basic tier, we get back to you in 48 hours, the medium tier, 24 hours, and then our top tier, 12 hours. So now you have that additional revenue to make some of these things happen. And it makes it easier. You're also not offering it to all of your doors. So that helps, you know, if you're just starting to look into what they call like a service level agreement, SLA, where you're just offering to your your premium offering. So that's maybe 10 to 20% of the doors under management. And so it, it reduces that that stress and that load that your team may have. And you can get better. And as you get better, then you can offer it to to more of your doors. But a lot of these opportunities like mark was talking about having a leasing fee that allows you to provide that value you have to you have to charge more there's just no way around it but you need to provide equal value for what you're charging and so having different tiers is a way to do that one example that we've changed it is 
the work order authorization, you know, the dollar amount in which we can just automatically spend owner's money, we've changed that amount based on what tier you're on. So you want to be more involved, Mr. And Mrs. Owner in your work? No problem. You get to pay more. So that's there's there's ways to to tweak things to give an owner what they want, but then you're compensated for it so you can actually make it happen. Awesome. All right. Well, um, that's uh, the measuring and improving experience input segment of today's webinar. We're going to be moving on to a tremendously valuable segment on measuring and improving experience outputs in just a few minutes. Uh, so hang around for that. I think it's going to be gold. What is uh, the significant thing that Wow, I need to skip through some of these slides. I'm not sure where that came from. Let me uh, skip through these. That's what we're going to come back to. What's the most significant thing you can do to improve your experience today? We've talked a lot, a lot of different things. What's the one thing that you need to focus on? Uh, we are putting together a tool here at Profit Coach to help you analyze your experience and some of the key uh, interactions that you're having with clients to understand where's the, again, the 20% of effort that can yield 80% of the results in improving your client experience. And we want to offer you an experience analysis call with our coaching team to help you discover how you stack up to the NARPM experience benchmarks of growth, churn, and profitability, and then help you analyze and ar architect your experience with our experience analyzing tool. And then ultimately from there, get help identifying your number one opportunity to maximize the value you create and ultimately the profit you generate as we've been talking about. So uh, we'd love to share this tool with you. How does it work? We need some financial information as well. So you send us a PL for the last 12 months on the call. We'll help you see how you stack up to these key benchmarks, help you get rolling with this analysis tool and ultimately help you identify the number one opportunity you need to take action on from today's discussion. So um, no strings attached to that. We just love to get on the phone, help create some value for you around this topic of experience with our experience analyzer tool. And if that would be of use to you, I'm just going to throw up a poll here that you guys can uh, use to say, hey, yeah, uh, reach out to me. Let's get that call scheduled. And we'd love to have uh, that conversation with you. So just say yes to the poll and we'd be happy to reach out and schedule that call with you. We are going to move to our Finance for Founders Spotlight. And today we're talking with Thad uh, from Second Nature. And the goal for this spotlight for each one of these operationalizing profit webinar episodes is just to step back from the minutia that we've been talking about, which is all amazing, and think big picture for a moment about the mindset that profitable founders engage with when it comes to finance. So Thad, um, just just let's just break into it here for a few minutes and talk about uh, some of the lessons that you've learned when it comes to finance. My first question for you is, as you've grown, as you've scaled, have there been any significant mindset shifts around finance as you've grown your company at Second Nature? Um, I love the pause for a thoughtful answer. Yeah, yeah I'm mad. Uh... And I, I think, I think you know, like, you know, some of the metrics that you are specifically tracking. Yeah. No, I was going to say, I, I um, it's definitely changed, right? Um, and, and I don't know, I, I would say it's changed because my, my view of finance, how it impacts the organization has evolved as I've learned more and, and, and uh, you know, but I, I would say when I look at like finance today, what, one of the mistakes I think I made early on maybe, so like I, mm -hmm. rather than like how it's changed, it's changed for the better. <laughs> so yeah. I think things that have improved is, you know, early on, I'm, I'm a very optimistic person and uh, yeah, I think you kind of have to be to be in business, 
but I've let that flow into a little bit of the way I would think about financial. So I'm like, mm-hmm. all right, if we do everything right, what's going to be, you know, in your case, my owner charter. If we do everything right, what's going to be my cost of labor, right? Mm-hmm. And then what you find out is you put yourself in a little bit of a, you know, pretzel where you're like, gosh, you know, this is low, this is high, and that starts to compound. So I, I think <laughs> as I think about finance, you know, what, what approach I've taken is from a, a forecasting and a business planning standpoint, but how do you almost sandbag and what's the conservative approach? Mm-hmm. Put yourself in a good position, but then you still have to attack those problems with urgency. And that's one mm-hmm. of the bigger challenges is, mm-hmm. you know, if you have different goals, different things, people get confused. But but I think that's one key piece. And then like the other one I would say is discipline. Um, you know, I know early on we would, we built this kind of robust financial model with all of our revenue sources, all of our expenses. And in, you know, a mentor of mine early on, you know, they were like, this is the crystal ball of your business. Like you're not gonna want to do it Friday night at eight o'clock, but you've got to do it. Like you need, you need a, you need a uh you know, you need a you need a forecast, right? If you're gonna plan. Um, now, look, if, if the business is growing 5%, you know, it's a few people like, sure, you can get away without it. But if you're trying to scroll, you know, scale to the size of like Adam or, you know, you know thousands of units, you've got to have a financial plan and understand, okay, when am I going to make a forward investment in new people? When am I going to make a forward investment in new software and process? And, you know, so, so I would say if, if you don't know where to start there, obviously, I know you guys have a lot of great resources there, Daniel, but, you know, like, Google. I don't know who can help you with a profit plan or financial forecast no idea <laughs> so, so there's there's my big plug i'm kidding but um no i uh no i really do like like having a discipline they're like we're going to do this every month and we're going to look at our numbers and then what you also realize uh, you know I, I like to say big doors swing on small hinges there are going to be a few things in your business they're like this this is really driving you know a lot a lot of the outcomes maybe it's your pricing structure maybe it's the customer segment you're targeting right you might mm-hmm. find you know you guys see this all the time but like Hey, these top ten percent of my customers—they're 90% of my headache, right? So there's there's things you'll start to notice as you start to get dashboarding and views of your your financials that will pop. I'll, I'll pause there and go into the next piece, but I would say discipline and um, you know really just doing doing financials, getting close to the numbers. It, every business owner should be in their numbers. I love that. Uh, we're actually going to tackle forecasting in the next call um, with with high integrity. But what I love what you said there—that is, it's like build the plan around conservative estimates, but go after the problem as if you were doing the BHAG forecasts uh, with that level of urgency and courage. Fantastic. I want to just talk a little bit about investing in the business um, and thinking long-term, particularly you talked in our pre-call, you talked a little bit about lifetime value, the focus on long-term retention and the the, the opportunity to invest in service. Um, and what you see as, as some of the pitfalls there with some some approaches. Can you unpack that a little bit? Yeah, yeah. So, so I, I would say, I mean, this is really around finance, um, you know, the, the section. Um, but I think knowing your numbers is really important. You know, in, in this business, it's a recurring revenue. It's it's a subscription model to an extent where, you know, you have a customer come in and they're spending money over a lifetime. And, you know, ultimately the decisions you're making in your business are going to affect that lifetime revenue. Your costs are going to affect, you know, obviously, uh, you know, roll to your cogs and then you're going to have your kind of lifetime profit. <laughs> and so, you know, so, some simple things to get started is understanding like, you know, if I have a customer that's spending 300 bucks a month and they're going to stay, you know, three years, well, that's about 10K in revenue, right? <laughs> and if my cogs are 50%, that's 5K in gross profits. So like, you know, you can say, okay, well, can I spend a thousand dollars to acquire a customer? Is that a good good use of money, right? 
if you don't understand that latter piece, a lot of these questions on on growth, where am I going to spend marketing dollars, sales, you know, are hard to answer. Now you're going to have second order questions of cash flow and payback theory, right? Like, well, if I if it takes me six months to make that first fifteen hundred, you know, how am I going to fund that? Right? The like, I feel like step one is getting into the numbers, understanding the business you're in. What are the key drivers? What are the financials I should understand? And don't be scared. Don't be scared of buying. It's like. Uh, you know, beat yourself up, but learn it. Mm-hmm. And then I think once you, you, you know, you'll start to realize like that the conversation shifts from, you know, kind of trying to keep up on a treadmill of, you know, I'd say early in finance, you know, when we didn't track our books really well, right now we have all financing things like that, but like, you know, we'd get an invoice and be like, what's this? What is this? Like, I don't, you know, and it throws you off. Right. So I think like, you know, g- getting your systems process is really important. But then once you understand all those levers, you can start to think really strategically about, hey, if I have 100 units, what would it take to go to 1,000? You know, mm-hmm. do I need to invest in people? Do I need to invest in marketing? You know, could I handle mm-hmm. the scale? And all of that should flow into to a financial model as well. But one of the things you mentioned on our call, uh, Thad, was that you've, you've seen this challenge, like in order to kind of maximize the lifetime profit, that there's this temptation to take a short-term view and maybe underinvest in certain things like service. Can you unpack that a little bit? Yeah, yeah. I know we were talking about this earlier. Um, and I I'll give an example of, of of an industry I think about, which is um home warranty. A lot of you are probably familiar with it. And yeah, I've been to a couple of the different uh facilities, done some tours and, and talked to those teams. And, and what I'd often see is, you know, a home warranty business, you're typically charging sixty bucks a month. So call it seven hundred and twenty dollars in revenue a year. And you might be getting a few claims a year, you know, at most, right? So Let's just estimate each one of these phone calls for a claim is 20 minutes, right? So we're talking about maybe an hour a year. You know, if you're paying someone $30 an hour to take that phone call, right? Let's benefit some other things. You're, that's like a, a $35 phone call. Out of $720 in revenue, you know, that's only 4%, right? Mm-hmm. And so I think what you look at though, you know, with those businesses, one of their com- most common complaints is, well, I get bad service. I don't mm-hmm. get good response times. So their their organics bad, right? There's there's high churn, and you know. But when you talk to a customer service executive with those companies, they're like, "Look how much I've lowered my costs. I'm paying eleven thirty seven an hour instead of eleven forty two. My, uh, you know, here's all this efficiency I'm driving. And you know, I, I don't know what the right answer is right here, but I think the question I would push to ask is, you know, hey, you're spending two percent of revenue on customer service instead of four, but could you charge instead of seven twenty? Yeah, seven forty. Yeah. And have you know a rock star customer service team, you know, and I have like you know, that's something we're really focused on heavily investing in improving, you know, and it, it, it is tough to do, but um, you know, like like that's somewhere I kind of look and just like take a bigger picture and say, okay, actually, and if I had more expensive people, would they stay longer? Would they learn the business better? Could I train them easier? Would they be more committed? Right? Like, what are the what are the the other outputs of that? Right? Yeah. Um, so you know, again, I would look at any area of your business, and sometimes. Spending more on quality, um, you know, is going to save you money in so many other places. Um, but, but like that's, you know, I think key is is kind of looking at the full picture. When it that's comes fantastic. To- Great advice. Think big term, a uh, big picture. Think long term. Um, thanks, Thad. Really appreciate you sharing those uh, thoughts from your personal experience. All right, folks, we are going to go back to experience outputs. We're going to wrap up with this. And uh, I want to talk a little bit about um, measuring and improving experience outputs in terms of reputation reviews and then referrals and just other measurables. But we're going to spend a little bit of time here on reputations and reviews, best practices. Adam, um, you know, 
you guys have a 4.7 on Google with 1300 reviews and counting. And I'd love to hear a little bit about some of the best practices that you guys have learned in terms of measuring and improving um, reputation and reviews and why that's important. Yeah, we have basically a constant pulse, any individual person on our team, all the way up to uh, our culture as a whole through through asking for reviews. And so everyone, we have a team goal of X amount of reviews per year. We break that, or sorry, a corporate company view a goal, and that's broken down to each individual. And so each individual we know that has to ask for 10 reviews, you know, to get one is kind of the math. And uh, we will measure that. So their direct reports or their boss is going to be measuring that and saying, hey, how come you're out, you're asking for reviews and you're just striking out or you're asking for reviews and you're getting them? Um, and that drives change for the each person on our team because they have the accountability of someone watching them. They are also compensated for every review that they go out and, and, and receive. And that helps us make sure that that person is engaged and they are aligned with her corporate vision of getting a lot of reviews and being driving customer experience. And so we have a constant pulse of who's asking, are they doing well? Why are they failing? Why are they failing? And let's have conversations about that. And so they're tasked to ask and deliver great experience or they can't ask, right? So it's rooting out people who are, you know, teammates who just aren't willing to, to drive change or deliver that great experience. Our BDM happens to be on this call. I'm seeing her in the chat. Um, she attributes the number one way that we grow probably to herself. She's an amazing person. But number two would be mm -hmm. because because we have such a stellar online reputation that when people are thinking of making any purchase, last time you bought something on Amazon, what did you do? You will check the reviews, right? And you immediately bought by, based off of that or because someone referred you uh, to that product. And so um, we generate a ton of leads and close a lot of business. In fact, when we're on Facebook posts, I see my local teammates saying, oh, I'm a low cost leader or I'm a fixed rates property manager. I'd say, go read my reviews. That's all I have to say. And then the phone rings. We joke about it as a local chapter. Engagement uh, engages the team to make ownership uh, of the experience. Kind of touched on that. Everybody has to own the outcome. Everybody's vision is aligned with the, the company's vision. And we really do hire based off of character and personality. And if they're just eager to help people, that's like 90% of the way there. Because we can teach them how to respond to people. We can teach them property management. We can teach them all the rules. But really, are they just inherently good people who want to deliver a great experience? Yeah, Adam, I think one of the things that struck me as being so significant and powerful about what you shared here is that, to be honest, like we know that we can have a significant impact on the review in you know, the review rating in Google, right? Like proactive measures make a difference. And I think I've thought that that in some way, like maybe takes away from the genuineness of the number. But what's significant to me about what you shared here is that just the mere practice of requiring your team to make the ask makes brings them into some accountability about the quality of the experience that they're delivering. In other words, like how do you have the confidence to make the ask, to make the 10x ask that you need to get the one review? Well, it's actually delivering the experience yourself day in and day out. And so I love the way that this focus on reputation actually does drive um, change and proactiveness in terms of your team creating that valuable experience upstream of the review occurring. So super insightful. I think this is honestly a, 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 an underutilized 
opportunity for creating that community conversation around your experience and your quality that really does inform people's perception. Awesome stuff. Um, Wolf, let's talk a little bit about, well, there's the metric, Google and other review platform ratings, target 4.5 plus on Google. Um, Wolf, let's talk a little bit about owner and resident. Uh, actually, I want to skip to owner referrals here. Um, talk a little bit about uh, how you guys are thinking about this at your company. So for us, the owner referral is kind of like, that's that's the best, right? Somebody's willing to go out on the limb, tell their friend, neighbor, coworker that, you need to use this company. We use them. That that's what we aim for. So <laughs> we've changed. You know, we had a lot of our um, in our processes automatic emails at certain trigger points to ask for a review, and we just realized it's best to pick up the phone at certain points. And say, hey, you know, I noticed that you blah blah blah. Would you mind giving us a review? So we're we're tweaking that. And on the referral side, the same way owner hey thank you so much for doing whatever and just training everybody like that is the time you have like a 30 second window to say hey that's awesome would you mind sharing this about us and getting a review there and then well is there anybody else that you think could benefit from our same level of service and asking for that referral and that one's a little bit harder to get people on the team to to ask for that directly, but that that's what we're going for, that we need to be able to ask directly for that referral and not the cheesy, you know, on the card, you know, that a lot of realtors use, hey, we would love to, you know, we don't do that, but just directly ask at that same time when we're asking for the review, well, is there anybody else that you know that maybe has the same point pain point that we could help them with, but just, you know, being face-to-face -face on the phone and being direct and asking for that referral because it really cuts out that sales process. Like when you're being referred and they finally call and say, hey, you know, my coworker Joe told me about you guys. You don't really have to get into the sales pitch. You just have to reaffirm what they've already been told because that trust has already been kind of established. You just got to confirm it and then close it. Awesome. My mentor, Steve Riddell, has said that uh, organic referrals is the number one indication of an extraordinary experience. So um, yeah. that is, uh, in so many ways, the holy grail here when it comes to measuring the quality of your experience. All right, um, Thad, I just wanted to throw this up there. I know you guys have done some work on this. Um, just can you give any just broad context around what these tools are and uh, what 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 you guys see as being meaningful ways to measure owner and resident uh, satisfaction from a quantitative perspective. Yeah, yeah, so so high level NPS is just a measurement of is someone a promoter, kind of detractor, CSATs, your customer satisfaction, and obviously I think everyone knows what a survey is. So, you know, first what I'd say here is, you know, rather than try and do a bunch, I think doing one thing decently well is a good start. And, and if I were to look at these, I, I think, an interesting one would be doing NPS, and you can do this. You know, I would do this for the owners and the and the residents. Um, and and simply, what is it? Sending out a survey um, and asking them, hey, on a scale of one to ten, how likely are you to you know re refer the business? You know, kind of your satisfaction. Uh, what's cool about it is if somebody gives you like a nine or a ten, you know, they'll be a promoter, build your NPS. If they give you, I think it's less than six, they're detractors. Somewhere in the middle is neutral. And so over one output you'll get is your NPS. And you can kind of track that as a company KPI and say, hey, every month, how are we training? Are we getting better? Are we getting worse? The cool thing though is, you know, when somebody gives you a nine or a 10, you know, if you use a tool like uh, one out there, there's a bunch you could use, it's called Delighted. 
you know, pretty low cost and it sets us in kind of automates it all. But everybody gets a nine or 10. We were just talking about organic referrals. You could just have someone once a month and say, hey, go take those 15 tens we got. Let's go ask him for a referral. You know, let's get on the phone and ask what we're doing well, right? Let's get some good feedback. And then when you get anything less, um, there's a feedback box. You can say, hey, rank it and why. Um, and what we found we do this is, you know, we get a ton of feedback, uh, often really good critical feedback that we uh, we, we want to hear. And that's when you can reach out and say, hey, I know you gave us four. What can we do to make this better, right? And so I think it's, you know, it's it's something that like universally set up, easy to use, uh, but it, it kind of is starts to bring inbound, you know, unhappy people that you can go, you know, fix that and fix the problem and make the driver referral. So that, that'd be one highlight I'd throw if, if nobody's doing that today. That's awesome. All right, folks, we're going to wrap it up here. Thank you so much for staying long with us today. Final actions, uh, how to take action on what we talked about. Where do you stand? Uh, do you have clarity on where you stack up on experience? Get in the game of financial performance with an ARPA accounting standards. Get converted, get in the game of financial performance and see how you stack up. We talked about LER. Uh, that's not the right slide for today. We are talking about three questions for architecting experience. What are the three things that you need to focus on leaving this call today? I'm going to leave these with you and then we're going to wrap. Are you solving the right problems and celebrating the solve? Your team needs to be focused on solving the right problems, the 20% that creates 80% of your value. And then you need to tell your clients when you've solved your problem and their problem and celebrate it with them. Number two, are you making it easy for them? Think effortless experience. Number three, are you getting organic positive feedback from your clients, spontaneous wow responses, organic referrals, reviews, et cetera? Three questions to take action on what we talked about today. Go and beat the benchmark. Join us again for episode number three, architecting growth, how to leverage the operational drivers of growth and profit. Thank you, everybody. Thank you so much, Thad, Adam, and Wolf. And folks, we appreciate you joining us today. Have a great day and take care. And that wraps up another episode of the Triple Win Property Management Podcast. Thank you for pressing play. We hope you've gained valuable insights and inspiration. The Triple Win Property Management Podcast is proudly produced and distributed by Second Nature, where we believe in a triple win, building winning experiences for your residents, investors, and your teams with the only fully managed resident benefits package. Visit secondnature.com to learn more and talk to an RVP expert in your area. If you have any questions, comments, or want to weigh in on the conversation, we'd love to hear from you. Email triplewin at secondnature.com. That's triplewin at secondnature.com. Stay connected with us beyond the podcast. Visit our website at secondnature.com to stay updated with upcoming property management events and articles. And don't forget, you can keep the conversation going in the Triple Win Property Management Facebook group. It's exclusively for property managers. To receive even more valuable insights and updates, subscribe to our newsletter. You can find the link to that and much more in the show notes. On behalf of the Triple Win community, this is Laura Mack thanking you for tuning in. And on behalf of Second Nature, this is Carol Housel. Check back soon for another exciting episode. Until then, keep striving for that triple win.